0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: Yes, you are indeed listening to Melbourne's community radio station, 3CR, and it's coming up right now to 4 o'clock and it's time for... Tuesday, home time with Jan Bartlett. Today, we'll be focusing on the marking of the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Beersheba and the Balfour Declaration. I'll be speaking with Michael Sheik from the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network and also pro-Palestinian activist Kim Bullimore and reading information from... A, a person who's in Palestine right at this moment on a walk for Palestine. Then we'll have the Medical Association for the Prevention of Wars monthly report with Dr. Margie Beavis and understanding the plight of a L- Rohingya in Myanmar with Lionel Bopage. But first of all, let's hear it from Mr. Kevin Healy.
2: A week, Jane, listener, when we live in a rudderless country, floating aimlessly toward a huge, albeit rapidly melting iceberg, leaderless, well, deputy leaderless, and... No, Rudolus wasn't a bad pun on a former big supremo. We could have said a barnacle-less country, although technically he's still here, out campaigning after the High Court attempted to scrape the barnacles off the floating ship of state. But in the nature of, it won't be long before the barnacle returns and steadies the boat, restores the rudder. Although we'll have to push on somehow without Fiona gnashing her teeth and Malcolm Rabbids, who knows climate change is not only crap, but is a UN of the US, of the UN of the world conspiracy, and the UN of is a huge commie front, which I'm sure most of us have noticed, and the downside of the High Court decision is that Malcolm is now hoping to impose himself on the people of her most gracious Majesty's land, and what have they done to deserve that? Thus we have to hope democracy can go on without Fiona and Malcolm. It's going to be tough, but the High Court did nothing but give us a few weeks of relief from Barnacle, although... Given his by-election is crowding the news every day, it could make things worse, our daily dose of barnacle. And listening to vox pops from those who will vote to return him, saging what a good bloke he is and what a good job he does, how he does such wonderful things, we have to agree there is a rapidly mounting case for a selective franchise in this country. The ignorant electing the ignorant. But then, to be honest, that sums up parliamentary democracy. Knowing, thanks to Malcolm, the one notion, if that, if that version, the UN of is a commie front, well, disturbingly, it's not just the UN of. Sadly, there's a new long haired commie threat to world capitalism the International Monetary Fund. No, no, you didn't miss here, the IMF. To paraphrase one of the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world takeovers of our language, it's come out of right field. We can assume US of big supremo Donald or the poor and our very own economic guru Scuttlebend More Lashstone and big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull and the team would agree, the IMF long a voice for their economic wisdom, a champion of neoliberal globalization has been captured by the evil commies, the evil unions because last week it delivered its periodical overview of world capitalism and iconoclastically scotched one of the great truths of trickle-down economics. They don't trickle down. Worse. And this is where the boardrooms worldwide were scrambling for the smelling salts its most iconoclastic statement not only does trickle down the drops of yellow liquid, the great corporates are good enough to dribble all over us, not trickle down but the first commandment of neoliberalism, that lower taxes for the filthy rich create jobs, jobs, jobs for the undeserving and bestow riches on all, does not create jobs, jobs, jobs does not bestow wealth on all it just apparently makes the filthy rich, filthy rich Who would have thought? This will cause a bit of a rethink among thousands of homeless and otherwise indigent and poverty-stricken and lower-than-low-paid and unemployed pledges screaming, begging for the government to slash taxes on the filthy rich so they, the poverty-stricken, etc., can be better off scuttle them and those who know obviously know the imf report is a commie plot but somehow the forces of evil have infiltrated the erstwhile reliable for when our very own more productivity from lazy workers con mission delivered its latest report this week and suggested there were higher priorities than tax cuts for the filthy rich scuttle them immediately announced the economy must work for people and the most pressing urgency was Tax cuts for the filthy rich, sticking it up the IMF and proving the IMF had been infiltrated and clearly had got it wrong or worse, Christine Lagarde, the wealth and the usual IMF suspects have been kidnapped and are being held hostage while the evil commie terrorists are writing their reports. Scuttle them and big supremo Malcolm had more proof of that when we were confronted with more uncharacteristic data from the uncharacteristic report. That, and doesn't this prove just how the IMF has been captured by the forces of evil, that True Blue Aussie was leading the world, well, what they call the developed world, in the past 30 years in inequality, in the gap between the filthy rich and those to whom the filthy rich devote their lives. Inequality widening in egalitarian True Blue Aussie. Come on, as one of the greatest and deepest thinking true blue Aussies ever born, knew it would say. Why, we've already mentioned how thousands of lower-than-low-paid and unemployed budgets are begging for government to slash taxes on the filthy rich so they, the poverty-stricken, etc., can be better off. Would they be pleading for tax cuts for the filthy rich if they thought for one moment there was growing inequality in this country? Indeed, the term growing inequality assumes there is inequality to grow. How ludicrous. But if there is, let's hypothetically assume for a moment there is some inequality. If there is, then what's wrong with growth? guttle them in the sundry chambers of prophets and experts who know lots more about these things than we do tell us growth is the name of the game trickle down raise the boat with the tide we've been very nautical today aren't we so growth and inequality must be good for the unequal i agree Filthy rich spokesperson, Rick Bloated, agreed. As a representative of one extreme of the unequal, I agree it is good, good, good. Uh, that's for all of us, Rick. Obviously, all of us agree. But hang on, what's all this commotion outside various offices of the all of them along Collins Street? There's tele cameras and reporters and anxious thrusting microphones everywhere, the cliched media throng. Uh, What's going on? We've had a tip-off. The federal coppers are going to raid these offices to seize documents related to political donations to the Institute of Public Very Private Affairs and related caring business class think tanks and lobbyists. No, seriously, we all know the greatest threat to law and order is a political donation or two made 10 years ago by the now Socialist Party leader's evil union before he was the now Socialist Party leader. Chosen at random after forensic study without any political interference for only the most cynical would suggest there's any political interference in the new smash the union's regulatory body or a government that had no idea the coppers were ordered either smashed the the union's regulatory body to investigate the leader of the opposition. And the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Michaelia Kosh, the workers assured us she knew absolutely nothing about the whole thing until she saw it on telly that night, meaning she hadn't talked to anyone in her office the whole day or just thought the staff seemed to be making a lot of urgent frenetic phone calls. And only the most cynical would suggest the government and its new smash-the-union regulatory body investigating the leader of the opposition as its number one priority is politically motivated. Only unpolitically sophisticated autocracies posing as democracy do that. By the by, that political sophisticate Donald assures us his campaign director and other team members being charged over their role at his election has absolutely nothing to do with him. If he was on your footy team, he'd kick the other way. Meanwhile, as Malcolm heads off to the Holy Lands, well, the holy land, to worship at the altar of Zion, victims of sexual abuse at a local school, that is, local here, are complaining at the failure of the Zion legal system to return the alleged perpetrator, who now, like so many others, pleads she is far, far, far too unwell even to attend the court for an extradition hearing, having have pleaded with Malcolm to plead their case in his discussions with the Zion government. I have promised them, Malcolm looked all the statesmen, that I will lick their message on Zion, big supremo venue and not another Yahoo's boots. month or so ago, we bemoaned the fact that we were only sharing the World Energy Combustion Award, the biggest polluter, with Turkey, and finally... Now we learn we're only running second to Indonesia in other people's business on the destroying species honour roll. Again, let's go to work on that one. If the long-haired commie greenies had their way, we'd bloody well go backwards in the species destruction stakes. One consolation is that we can but hope lots of true blue Aussie caring corporates and filthy rich are getting filthy richer through making their contribution to Indonesia Inn's top spot. Although I think the criteria is unfair, the study only looked at destruction since late last century. Surely if it took a different date, let's say 1788 just to grab a date out of the air, out of the then very pure clean air, and I reckon we'd be world champion species destroyer. Still we're stuck with the guidelines we've got, so whenever we fall upon native indigenous flora or fauna, let's do our bit. Shoot it. Stab it. Poison it. pelt it with a shovel. Clear it. Cut it down. Build over it. Turn it into a euphemistically named residential and commercial estate. Whack a freeway through it. Endless possibilities and every little bit helps. Good afternoon.
1: I'm sure he doesn't talk like that on City Limits, where he's next starring tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. That's Mr Kevin Healy. Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and Opposition Leader Bill Shorten, along with other Australian and New Zealand politicians, members of the Australian Army, descendants of the Light Horsemen who fought in the battle, and members of the Australian Jewish community, have travelled to Beersheba for the 100th anniversary of the battle and marking the centenary anniversary of the Balfour Declaration in which Lord Balfour, as part of the British colonial endeavour in the Middle East, promised land in Palestine to a future Jewish homeland. Both of these events are being widely celebrated in the Australian Jewish community as instances of British and Anzac support for Zionism and Israel. But there is another side to these celebrations, the colonial whitewashing, the airbrushing out of Palestinians from the history of Beersheba and the Balfour Declaration. I'm speaking with Michael Shaikh from the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. Michael, how are you approaching the marking of these two events?
3: I want to make it clear that we've got absolutely no objection to the battle being commemorated. This is not about Australian military history. It's about the abuse of that history to delete the Palestinian narrative. This war um, is being portrayed as the Anzacs and the British Empire liberating the Middle East so that Israel could be established. What it totally fails to mention is that it wasn't just the British Empire that was fighting the Ottomans, it was the indigenous Arab people of the country who were fighting against the Turks. Because Britain had said, that if they rose up against the Ottoman Empire, Britain would recognize their independence. Now, two days after the Battle of Beersheba, the British government totally reneged on that promise to recognize the Arabs' independence by saying that they would support the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine without consulting the Palestinian population. So for the Palestinians, this was the beginning of a 100 years of dispossession, colonization, occupation and apartheid, and that's the thing that's missing from this whole narrative that's taking place in Israel today. There's not only no mention of the historic role of the Arabs in World War I, but there's no mention of how this battle actually led to massive dispossession and oppression of the Palestinian population, or that today the people living around Beersheba are refugees in their own country, a lot of them were driven into the Gaza Strip, where they're living in appalling conditions. Those that remained are living in unrecognized Palestinian villages, which Israel still today refuses to connect to electricity, water, sewage infrastructure and the like. And they've been forced off their land even now to make ruins for more Jewish settlements. And that's what we're really concerned about, that this isn't about remembering the past. In a way, it's a distortion of history as a means of, forgetting and rewriting the past and airbrushing inconvenient people from the narrative.
1: Let's talk about those so-called inconvenient people who were the Arabs 100 years ago in Beersheba.
3: There were mainly Bedouin people. They were the ones who welcomed the British. It was the Bedouin mainly who fought with people like Lawrence of Arabia against the Ottomans, attacking Turkish railroads and garrisons to tie down their soldiers and to make it more difficult to resupply their troops at the front line. And, and these were the indigenous people of, of that area. Now, most of them have been pushed out of that area in the last hundred years. And these are the ones that the British claimed they were coming to liberate. At the time, they didn't actually say that they were trying to lay the foundations of the state of Israel. That is a rewriting of history. At the time, they claimed that they were trying to liberate the Arab peoples from the Ottoman Empire. And it was because of that promise that the Arabs revolted against the Ottomans so that they could get their independence. When Israel was formed in 1948, they didn't have majority Jewish population in Palestine. So what they needed to do to turn it into a Jewish state was to get rid of the indigenous Palestinian population. And that was done in a a, a very brutal manner. They would um, massacre entire villages. Other villages they would go to and say, look, if you don't leave now, tomorrow we're going to come through and do the same to you as we did to that other village. Sometimes they were forced onto buses at gunpoint, Uh, although there were some who did hang on and they um, now are second-class Israeli citizens, but most of them were driven away. And these were the people who were liberated by the Anzacs when they took Beersheba. And they welcomed the Anzacs as liberators at the time. They didn't really understand what was in store for them or what the British Empire had promised the Rothschilds in the Balfour Declaration that that would come back to dispossess them later.
1: Just talk about that Balfour declaration and what it actually said.
3: Uh, It was a a statement from Lord Balfour, who was a British foreign minister, to uh, the head of the Rothschild family, who was a big supporter of the Zionist project to establish a Jewish state in Palestine. And it just said briefly, His Majesty's government views with favour the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. It doesn't actually say Jewish state, but if you actually look at the correspondence at the time, that was a euphemism. And, and, and it actually said there will be, under the understanding, nothing will be done to prejudice the rights of the existing Christian and Jewish Arabs currently living in Palestine. But that that was very quickly reneged on. It was one of the most duplicitous acts of the British Empire in its history, essentially, because only Two years before, they had promised the Arabs that if they rose up, and the Arabs paid a terrible price for rising up against the Ottoman Empire. Ottoman counterinsurgency was not very enlightened at the time, and there were a lot of massacres. But they fought a good fight based on that promise by the British government that they would recognize their independence. That's the context, you see. And even on the website of the Australian Foreign Affairs Department, there's a document that says, on the day Beersheba was captured, the British War Cabinet approved the text of a declaration of sympathy for Zionist aspirations to be made by Foreign Secretary Lord Balfour, which was published two days later. And this is a good thing, according to the Department of Foreign Affairs, even though it was the most perfidious document in British history. And now, in Great Britain, this is being celebrated. So not only you know, are the Arabs being ignored, but this great travesty uh, against Palestine's indigenous population, and this big lie, is being celebrated as a good thing now. And that is our main concern here. Like I said, we've got nothing against commemorating a battle in which Australians fought with great bravery, but the fact that that battle was part of a larger campaign of lies and defeat that ultimately led to a great many of the troubles in the Middle East today, and the ongoing problem of Palestinian dispossession and colonisation is very problematic that being celebrated in this way.
1: And how much is it costing the Australian taxpayer for this whitewashing of history?
3: I don't know, but I mean, a whole lot of people are being flown over first class. One of the most concerning points of it is the abuse of Aboriginal history in this respect because it is true that Aboriginal Australians took part in the charge of Beersheba, and at a time when they weren't even counted as Australian citizens, and that they fought as bravely, and they were um, accepted as diggers, just like the um, white troops. But when they came back to Australia, of course, they weren't allowed to drink at the RSL. And so once again, this is being celebrated as a good thing, whereas the more resonant point is that both Israel, and Australia are settler colonial societies. And when we kind of like celebrate the multicultural nature of the Beersheba charge, once again, it's this pop neoliberal multiculturalism. We can all kind of wear our national dress, talk about past injustice, but not about present injustice. And this is a time, of course, when the government has just said when the Aborigines asked for a formal voice in Parliament regarding their affairs and reconciliation based on truth-telling. It's just been rejected by Malcolm Turnbull out of hand in favor of a symbolic recognition process. But the whole paternalist structure of the arrangement between the Australian government and its Aboriginal population remains intact. So so once again, you can see how this Beersheba charge is abusing military history to cover over much more fundamental injustices, not only towards the Palestinians, but towards the Aboriginal population. You're allowed to kind of come to Beersheba to wave your flag, to talk about your grandparents, as long as you don't talk about the other thing. And that's the ongoing dispossession and colonisation of the Indigenous populations in both Palestine and Australia.
1: As I said, the ceremony is being broadcast live from the ABC. Has APAN made any approach to the ABC to get a different point of view on what these celebrations mean?
3: Well, we did send out a press statement um, on Friday, registering our objections, and we sent it to the ABC and SBS. Actually, Dateline last night had a very good feature on the Battle of Beersheba, where they interviewed um, Palestinian Australians and Jewish Australians to uh, ask what they thought about it, and, and they did a very good coverage. Unfortunately, one of the worst coverages was by SBS, which is supposed to be the voice of multicultural Australia, which is totally whitewashed. There was no mention of the Palestinians before. There was this great celebration that the Battle of Beersheba laid the foundation for the establishment of Israel, and, and no mention whatsoever. So the media in general have followed the government's line and continue to do so, but there has been some good journalism. There was a very good feature in The Sunday Age by Saul Salby who's a member of the Australian Jewish community, also noting the current plight of Palestinians in Beersheba today and how none of the commemoration is in Arabic. It's all in Hebrew and English. Palestinians are not welcome, and we don't want any memory of them and the role that they played in the war, essentially. Uh, there has been some good coverage but most of, the, um, m- most of it has been generated by the government's line and the government policy on this issue is indistinguishable from Israel. I think we need to remember that in December last year the whole of the United Nations Security Council passed a resolution condemning Israeli settlement activity in the occupied territories. Only two governments from the world spoke out against it one was Israel, the other was Australia under Malcolm Turnbull. Like I said, this is an abuse of uh, the Anzacs at Beersheba. Didn't know that a hundred years later, their sacrifice and their heroism would be prostituted to this shoddy rewriting of history to justify, you know, the current regime of apartheid in Australia today. Also to gloss over what's happening in Aboriginal Australia as well. The fact that, they've actu- that they're actually making a, such a big deal about the Aboriginals' participation in the, the cavalry charge at a time when the Australian government has told the leaders of Indigenous Australia that they're not interested in anything except tokenistic recognition as opposed to reconciliation. It, once again, it's an abuse of history by both governments. And both governments, which have a very shoddy record of the, uh, on Palestinian human rights.
1: And I'm pretty sure that these dignitaries that are going from Australia and I imagine Britain and other countries having a, a very good time there, getting the best of everything, won't be crossing into the West Bank to find out exactly what this has meant for the Palestinian people in their own land.
3: I, I do believe, though, that Bill Shorten has already crossed into the occupied territories to meet the Palestinian um, Prime Minister. And this is a member of the Labor Party who's not known for his pro-Palestinian sympathies. But I think he's come from such a lot of pressure from below within the Labor Party. There's such a lot of pressure from regional Labor Party caucuses to recognise Palestine that he realises he can't just go there, drink champagne rub shoulders with Netanyahu and slap each other on the back and all that kind of stuff without making at least a token uh, uh, visit to the Palestinians. So, in a way, if you want to look at the bright side, that's it. Um, and also that Jacinda Ardern, the new uh, New Zealand Prime Minister, has indicated she's much too busy to take part in this circus. Generally, I mean, these are, um, you know, I mean, we'll be paying for the airfares. We'll be paying for... All the other stuff that goes along with it. People have a lot of great fun, and Israel is very open that this is great public relations for them. To be seen at a time when they're building settlements and dis- demolishing Palestinian homes a- at a record rate, to have the international community, to have the Australian Prime Minister and opposition leader line up and say how we share their values of democracy, human rights, and respect for the rule of law on television is just wonderful PR. You know, it all looks great until you look beneath the surface and realize it's a huge lie. Not only when they talk about Israel being a great democracy today, but the whole memory of the battle of Beersheba is a, a, a grotesque distortion of history. This is a very necessary distortion of history because if you can write the Palestinians out of the past, then you can also write them out of the future. The whole narrative of Zionism is that Palestinian was a land without people for a people without a land. Now, that was never the case, but they've kind of like tried to paper over this by representing the Palestinians as a historical aberration, that the Jews have always lived there And it was always the capital of the Jewish capital and Jewish homeland. And the Christians and Muslim Arabs who've lived there for hundreds or thousands of years really don't belong there. And they they should move out to Jordan. And this kind of like thing, when you remember history, but you don't actually remember the people who were there, there were almost no Jews in Beersheba when it was liberated by the Anzacs and by, uh, by the British imperial forces. But you, you wouldn't know that from, from the commemorations. You wouldn't know that it was an overwhelmingly Arab city. And it's only possible that these massive human rights violations can take place today if you paper over that, that, that history, airbrush the Palestinians out of it, and make it a, a story of Zionist triumphalism.
1: Is Theresa May and her entourage there as well?
3: I don't think they're going to this one. They are having tomorrow, or in November, a commemoration and celebration of the Balfour Declaration, which in a way is more grotesque, because at least the Battle of Beersheba was a genuine battle that should be remembered by Australians because it was an important part of our history. Whereas I do think the Balfour Declaration should be remembered with shame because it was a grotesque betrayal of Britain's allies in the war, and, it's, and it was Britain giving away something they had no right to give away. They promised that the Palestinians would get their independence, then they gave their country away to the Zionist movement, and what we're living with now is the consequence of that. A hundred years later, when you go to the Gaza Strip, and you see the poverty and the misery and the destruction and, you know, and the West Bank and the house demolitions and the colonization, the um, Jewish-only roads, the um, inequitable distribution of water and land and the checkpoints and all that, that all flows from the Balfour Declaration. So I do think it's very important to remember the Balfour Declaration, but don't celebrate it. It's celebrating everything that was bad about the British Empire not only its racism, but its um, mendacity, its dishonesty, uh, abuse of people who had fought so bravely against the Ottomans for the British Empire and then were just casually betrayed for the sake of Britain's imperial interests. Y- yes, I don't think t- Theresa May is, it will be at Beersheba, but there will be a separate celebration in Britain about the Balfour Declaration.
1: Which Robert Frisk? described as the most mendacious, deceitful and hypocritical document in modern British history.
3: Until recently, even people like Boris Johnson agreed that that was the case. Nobody stuck up on the Balfour Declaration. But all of a sudden, history's been rewritten again. It's like, because we live in a post-truth world, we can get away with just saying, oh, no, 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 it was a great thing, Look, Israel's a great democracy, and the Balfour Declaration was a part of that. With everybody at the time, for the last hundred years, a historical consensus among all serious historians, it was that the Balfour Declaration was not only a catastrophic crime, it was a grotesque blunder that has destabilized the Middle East ever since, and didn't even serve Britain's long-term interests. But... Unfortunately, you know, because Theresa May thinks the truth is negotiable, she, she thinks it's something that they can celebrate now. And, you know, she's a part of conservative friends of Israel, is as is Boris Johnson and most of her cabinet. But, you know, the, the great concern is we can't learn from the past if we don't know our past. And if history has been rewritten about it, how can we go forward into the future to actually solve the Israel-Palestine problem if we're celebrating the worst aspects of our past that that got us into the mess that we're in now. That is what we're protesting against. And unfortunately, the British government's playing their part and the Australian government's playing their part. We're doing what we can to make sure that the, the, the past is remembered properly, essentially, and that history is not abused for this shoddy political purpose.
1: Thanks, Michael. You're welcome. And that's what we do here at 3CR2. That was Michael Shake from the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network.
2: Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogra they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us. And they say, it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing.
1: Subscribe to 3CR.
0: Bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch.
2: They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people.
1: Who does the killing?
2: The company has uh, specially arranged security forces.
0: Subscribe today. Call nine four one nine eight three double seven.
1: At this moment, activists are in Palestine as part of the work to Jerusalem 2017, a creative campaign from the AMOS Trust, a small UK human rights organisation, to mark the centenary of the Balfour Declaration and 50 years of military occupation of the Palestinian territories. I'm joined by pro-Palestinian activist Kim Bullimore to not only assess the impact of that Declaration, but the fact that it was the culmination of Zionism, not a 2,000 year old yearning to restore Jews to their homeland, but a modern movement that was born in the last quarter of the 19th century. But first, Kim, the Balfour Agreement.
4: This year, on the 6th of November, is the 100th anniversary of what's known as the Balfour Declaration. It was a letter issued by the then British Foreign Secretary, Lord Arthur Balfour, given to the Zionist movement. And it was a very short letter, actually. It was only something like 67 words long. And so for such a short document, it actually had a massive impact. Uh, and I'll just briefly read out what it sort of said. And, and it was a letter first to Lord Rothschild, who was a leading member of the Jewish community at the time and also was sponsoring a number of the settlements that were already in Palestine, agricultural settlements and everything, had been set up by groups like Lovers of Zion and things like that. So the letter said, you know, Dear Lord Roth, Roth, Rothschild, I have the pleasure to convey to you on behalf of His Majesty's Government the following declaration of sympathy, with Jewish Zionist aspirations, which has been submitted to and approved by the cabinet. And then it says, His Majesty's Government views with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object, being the clear understanding that nothing should be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of the existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. So this is the basic document that uh, is given by the British government as a promise to the Zionist movement to help establish, they use the term national homeland for the Jewish people, but later on, Lloyd George, David Lloyd George, who was the Prime Minister at the time, admits that they, you know, they did know that it meant a Jewish state. I think it was in about 1922 or 1923 that he finally admits this. So what is important about this document is that up until that time, the Zionist movement didn't have any imperialist backers. They had actually been seeking an imperialist backer since the end of the the 19th century, because basically this was a period of colonization, and as we know, at the time, most countries had people, inhabitants living in it. Uh, There were inhabitants in Palestine, inhabitants in Australia, inhabitants everywhere, indigenous inhabitants that were there, but there were imperialist nations like Britain, France, Germany, many others who were going into these various countries and establishing colonies to take out mineral wealth, to take out other resources, and to you know, basically exploit the wealth of those countries. And Herzl, the, founding, the founder of the Zionist movement, he was extremely aware that you know, it would be impossible to set up a Jewish state without the backing of at least one imperialist force. So what the Balfour Declaration did was it gave, for the very first time, imperialist backing to the Zionist movement, something that it had never had before, and this was very, very significant. So I suppose to understand the sort of context of this and where it comes, we do have to go back a little bit to look at the history of Zionism and what it was trying to do. As mentioned, uh, Theodor Herzl is considered to be the founding father of Zionism, and his book, The Jewish State, uh, which he wrote in 1960, he wrote The Jewish State. And basically in that book, he talks about establishing a Jewish state in either Palestine or Argentina, What's noticeable about the book is that it's very clearly a colonial endeavour and he he has no qualms about saying that this is a colonial endeavour and that, you know, we need to go somewhere, remove the the indigenous population and establish a Jewish state. He says this both in his diaries and not so as obvious in the uh, Jewish state, but it's clearly said in his diaries. So between the, when he wrote The Jewish State and between his uh, up until his death, in I think it was in 19, 1903 or 1904, that was his main aim was to try and get a colonial imperialist backer to support the Zionist cause. You know, uh, Herzl contacted everybody. He wrote to, he tried to carry out negotiations with Austria, Russia, Bulgaria, Hungary, R- Romania, Germany, Italy, Britain, France, the Vatican even you know as well as the Ottoman Empire and uh, what's really uh, interesting is in 1902 Herzl even wrote a letter to one of the best known colonial figures of the day who was Cecil Rhodes, asking him to come behind the plan uh, for a Jewish state in Palestine and he wrote a letter saying to him you know you're invited to make history uh, and to be part of this and uh, he actually says why am I you know contacting you about this it's because it's something colonial and that's a direct quote. He says it's because it's something colonial and he wants uh, Cecil Rhodes to back it. So this is the sort of the background of the recognition by Herzl and the Zionist movement that it would be impossible to establish a Zionist state anywhere whether it be palestine or argentina or even uganda which was considered at one stage as well by the zionist movement but in the end uh the overwhelming majority of the zionists wanted to go to palestine so after Herzl's death uh in 1904 you know that was the main focus and so over that period from 1905 up to 1917 you had uh, members of the zionist movement Actively lobbying the British government, the uh, German government and other governments to support the Zionist cause. And so we have to look at, well then why did Britain come behind the Zionist cause, you know. Was it because they were particularly pro-Zionist? Was it because uh, of uh, any other reason? There are a number of different arguments that are put forward. Uh, one of the key ones, which I think uh, is, is correct, is that it had very much to do with Britain's imperialist desires at the time. Britain had, as, as with France and other countries, had a lot of interests in the Middle East so it was really important for them to put down Real roots in that area. Uh, at the time, the Ottoman Empire controlled the Middle East, but the Ottoman Empire was already in decline and was about to collapse. It was colloquially known as, you know, the the sick man of, sick man of Europe. All the main empires around that time, Britain. France, Germany, all that, were all waiting for the Ottoman Empire to collapse and to be able to go in and take control of it. And in 1916, you had a secret agreement drawn up between the British and France, uh, known as the sykes PICO agreement which is a very famous agreement where basically literally Sykes and PICO the representatives of both uh, French and British governments took a red pen and literally just marked new borders on the map of the Middle East you know and this is why we have partly such a a big reason why we have such a mess at the moment uh, in regards to borders and uh, you know things like that at the moment so the reason why Britain and France were really interested in having this was because they wanted to strengthen their own interests in the region, much like today when we see the US wanting to strengthen their interests in the region. So both Britain and France had major economic, political and military interests in the Middle East, and they wanted to obviously access the vast oil wealth that was underneath the sands in the Middle East. Britain in particular also wanted to ensure access to and control of the Suez Canal, which had been built in 1869, because it offered a direct to its colonies, particularly in India. They didn't want to have to go the long way. They wanted a a much more clearer route. And Palestine was an important, I suppose, port along the way uh, that would help facilitate those sort of things. And also, you know, other uh, historians have argued that the reason why people like Balfour and that also came on board and and other members of the British government, like David Lloyd George, supported uh, the Zionist course, was because they themselves were anti Semitic. And uh, people, there's, for example, Tom Segev, uh, who's an Israeli historian, in his book, One Palestine Complete, he makes this argument that there was, particularly David Lloyd George, who was the Prime Minister of Britain at the time, uh, had this inflated idea of the power of Jewish people at that time. And so he saw it as a way of courting them. People like Balfour, Balfour was actually incredibly racist, despite like being pro Zionist. And so, you know, it very much much fitted in with, well, you know, then if we have a Jewish state, then... We don't have to worry about having Jewish people in Britain because, you know, there had been a long history in Britain of anti-Semitism, of uh, actually expulsion of Jews and things like that. So, you know, there are all these different factors that came into play that brought the Brit- British on board with that. At the end of the First World War uh, and the collapse of the uh, the Ottoman Empire, you had Britain come into into Palestine, take control of it uh, with um, Allenby riding into Jerusalem, and then a couple of days after Allenby takes control of Jerusalem when the Balfour Declaration is issued.
1: We have this story of a a land with no people. That's another myth that is a colonial myth too. What was the situation in Palestine?
4: This was one of the famous sort of slogans that were kind of used, uh, a land without people for a people without land. At the time, uh, Palestine was very much... Populated and very much occupied by an indigenous Arab population. At the time, Palestinian Arabs made up about 91% of the population uh, and uh, Palestinian Jews made up about 9% of the population. That You could see there was a, a significant population of uh, Palestinian Arab Muslims and Christians who were there. I mean, even, uh, you know, there's a very famous letter that was written at the end of the the 1800s, saying that, you know, it's a myth to think of, uh, 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 it was written by a, a Jewish philosopher
0: who said, you
4: know, it's a myth to think that that Palestine is an empty country. It isn't. You know, every acre of land is taken uh, that's arable is being, you know, is being used to grow crops and, and things like that. So, of course, and the Palestinian people were hoping themselves for independence, uh, and they were part of the more broader pan-Arab nationalist movement. Who wanted independence for all the Arab, not states but provinces that existed under the Ottoman Empire? This is one of the, the interesting things that you know Zionists tend to play up. Is they say, oh, you know, Palestine was just part of the broader Arab Empire. On one hand, that's true, but on the, on the other hand, is it? Well, Palestinians did see themselves as part of the greater Syrian nation and the greater Syrian people, they also saw themselves as a nation as well within that. Uh, If you look at uh, a a number of studies that have been done, including by people like Haim Gerber, who's an Israeli historian, many other uh, Palestinian historians, you can trace it back to see that there was already a proto-understanding of Palestinian nationalism that had existed prior to the Zionist movement coming into Palestine, that people very much saw, you know, Palestine as their land, their country, that there were documents not just within the Ottoman Empire that talked about, uh, Ottoman administration that talked about Palestine. As Palestine, but also just within Arabic documents and things like that that existed uh, around that time. Of course, what happened later on with the Zionist movement coming in, it made a, a huge difference and actually accelerated that Palestinian sense of nationalism and Palestinian sense of identity.
1: What protests were there against this?
4: There were very many protests right from the very beginning. Uh, what's interesting is if we if go back again and look to sort of the period of... Uh, 1917, 1918, 1919, when the British first came into Palestine, they were seen as, a for, as, you know, liberators because the Palestinians hoped that they would have their own nation, that they would get independence. But it soon became clear that this was not going to be the case. And what's interesting, at the end of World War One, of course, is that the powers uh, that, that won the war, Britain, France, all of those, also were having... Were, you know, various international meetings to carve up the Ottoman Empire. And what's interesting to look at that in this respect is that when it came to to Palestine, there was uh, what was known as a, a, as a... It was sort of headed by President Wilson at the time uh, because he had put forward this idea of a 14-point plan that basically was self-determination for various people. But, of course, countries like France and, and Britain weren't overly keen on that. They wanted to push their imperialism and their imperialist desires into the area. But because of the sort of changing mood of politics at the time and the beginning of the rise of the American empire, they sort of had acquisition a bit to it. But what happened was in 19... I think it was 19, 1918, there was what was known as the King Crane Commission, which went to to the... Arab provinces to find out what they actually wanted to do. You know, did they want self-determination? Did they want this? Did they want that? And, of course, it came back very clearly that they very much wanted self-determination and that, they rejected Zionism. Uh, and so, what's interesting about the King Crane Commission is that, sorry, it was in August 19, they gave their report in August 1919. And uh, King and Crane noted that they had received like 18 over 1,800 petitions related to both Syria and Palestine, and the majority of them were from Christians and Muslims. And something like 72% of those petitions opposed the Zionist program and Zionist claims to Palestine. They were backed by far the biggest opposition of anything that uh, Keegan Crane had come across. So it was very clear to the, you know, the Americans, the British, France, everybody, that this was the case. However, that report was suppressed because it went against what particularly the British wanted. And what's interesting is Balfour talks about how, well, you know, we're not going to consult the Palestinians. Their attitude is uh, not important. Uh, what is important is that we do what we want to do with Palestine, and we will not consult with the Palestinians as to what they want. This is very famous. So then, the Palestinians actually didn't know uh, on the whole about the Balfour Declaration until like about fifteen months later. So the declaration happens on the second of November in nineteen seventeen, and it's really not until around February nineteen twenty that the Palestinians become aware that this foreign country gives away their country to another people. And so it only comes out when uh, Lewis Bold, who's the chief administrator of the occupation administration that Britain has in Palestine, is forced to admit that there is this policy. And then in April, two months later, in April 1920, Boyle has to announce the San Remo Conference outcomes, which is where the mandates are allocated to the various different imperialist nations, and so when he announces this, the mandates of Palestine includes the Balfour Declaration, and so this is when it becomes public to the Palestinians more generally that this has happened, and so then there starts to be major protests and opposition uh, to what's happening. So in February and April of 1920 start to get major protests against the Balfour Declaration and British policy for the very first time because up until this stage, the Palestinians were pretty much unaware of what was going on. They, you know, the policy had been
0: hidden from them.
1: Can I just read you one short sentence from that Balfour Agreement? It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done that may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. How did they intend to do that?
4: That was kind of actually uh, um, just included at the last minute. The Balfour Declaration to what what was eventually published actually underwent a lot of negotiation. Of course, the Zionists wanted it to be far more explicit. The British knew that they couldn't be as explicit as the Zionists wanted to be, so there was a lot of backwards and forwards about it, and that section was sort of only put in at the last minute And it was basically to try and, you know, really just placate anyone who had a bit of qualms about it sort of thing. As I mentioned before, uh, Balfour uh, was very clear about what it meant uh, in in February February 1919. he wrote to Lloyd George, who was the Prime Minister at the time, saying, you know, of course, in the case of Palestine, we deliberately and rightly declined to accept any principle of self-determination. There was some opposition by one or two members uh, of the Parliament uh, of the sorry, government, but they were pretty much overridden. Curzon uh, in particular, Lord Curzon, became the Foreign Minister after Balfour. He uh, really, you know, said, look, this is just going to cause us lots of problems, the Palestinian Arabs are not going to accept this, blah, 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 blah. But his opinion and that of others were, uh, who, who had qualms about it were actually overridden. You know, as I said, Balfour, in, this doc, in a document to Curzon, he actually says, I'll just quote this, he says, four great powers are committed to Zionism, Zionism, be it right or wrong, good or bad, is rooted in long, age-long traditions in present needs and in future hopes of a five founder import than the desires and prejudices of 700,000 Arabs who now inhabit that land. So basically, they, the British didn't care. And it was, that's just a crime. And what's interesting is, of course, is that you notice with that particular quote you read out, it doesn't actually mention who the other people are, who these people are. They're actually not even mentioned, the Palestinian Arabs, as a people aren't even mentioned in the Balfour Declaration. They're just referred to very obliquely as, you know, the existing population. They're not given an identity. So it just shows you the colonial mentality of how the Palestinians were seen. As you know, they were pretty, if you read any of the documents from those days, Palestinian Arabs are pretty much seen as being backward, savage, very Orientalist, racist attitudes towards them. So it's unsurprising that they were not taken serious but of course Palestinians were like any other people had people who were educated and intelligent and who uh, very much understood uh, the world and what was going on. And, of course, once they became aware that this was the active policy of the British, they opposed it outright, right from the very beginning. They have always opposed it. Woodrow Wilson, who was the president at the time, as I said, he had put forth his 14-point plan in the lead-up to the various national conferences to decide the carving up of the spoils after World War I and his position was you know supposedly this idealistic self determination for all blah 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 blah. but of course in reality that didn't really happen I mean if you look at what the mandate system was was really it was just a, another form of colonialism and another form of imperialism the idea behind the mandates was supposedly that they would go these more experienced more civilised nations would go and help these less developed nations to rise up and become all that they could and then they would become independent. But as I just mentioned before, Britain was very clear from the very beginning that they weren't even going to entertain that with Palestine. So my understanding is Wilson was uh, advised that Britain was going to issue the Belfort Declaration and he never opposed it, so they kind of accepted that. Yeah, you know, he supported it. And that was about it. So that was the only real role that they had at the time in Palestine. And, of course, obviously the role of the U.S. today uh, in relation to Palestine and Israel is, of course, much more hands-on and um, very much part of the problem sort of thing. But back then, Britain was still a major imperialist power, so they were the key sort of force.
1: Finally, Kim, would you agree with Robert Fisk, the journalist, with his comment... That the Balfour Declaration was the most mendacious, deceitful, and hypocritical document in modern British history. It is
4: definitely up there. Uh, I would. Uh, I mean, I think there is a lot of documents that Britain issued that had a huge impact on the Middle East as well as. Elsewhere, so definitely it's, it would be up there as one of the one of the worst sort of thing. And we've only just talked about the history of Balfour. And just be, you know, before we finish, just to talk about what happened afterwards, because the, the next period of uh, ever since Balfour, Palestinians for the last hundred years have actively opposed it and actively fought to win their own self determination and to win the statehood for themselves. And you know, in the immediate period of the mandate. There were a number of riots that took place in 1920, 1921. There were protests all through the 20s, and then there was major riots in 1929, 33, And then uh, in, in 1936 to 1939, we had a massive anti-colonial revolt by the Palestinians who, uh, up until this stage, prior um, to uh, 1936, the protests generally had been unorganised, disorganised, and while there had been, unfortunately, deaths and that happened, there had been no organised, you know, armed resistance or anything on any significant scale. And generally the main way that the Palestinians had tried to push back against Balfour was through the diplomatic channels, but that was a complete failure. So by 1936, you know, particularly a lot of younger Palestinians had had enough. Then you saw the eruption of the anti-colonial revolt, which was against both the British government and against uh, the Zionist movement in 1936 to 1939, which basically threw the whole of Palestine into chaos. More than 5,000 Palestinians died during that struggle. one stage, the Palestinian guerrillas took control of just about most of Palestine – but they were brutally put down by the British, uh, with the help of the Zionist militia forces at that time. From the very beginning, Balfour destroyed, began to destroy the very fabric of Palestinian society, uh, because that's what it was designed to do. You know, as we said, it had uh, the beginning of the mandate, uh, or beginning of when the Balfour Declaration was issued, the Palestinians made up 91% of the population, Palestinian Arabs. And of course, by the time 1948 came along, that started to be inversed, that Palestinians became then a minority in their own country. And that was because uh, under the auspices of the Balfour Declaration, there was able to be mass Zionist immigration into Palestine. That was why the Balfour Declaration was so important to the Zionist movement, that it gave them an imperialist backer that allowed to facilitate mass Zionist immigration into Palestine to change the demographic balance because the Zionists were aware that unless they changed the demographic balance in Palestine, there could not possibly be the establishment of a Jewish state there. And right from the very beginning, the British, even the Zionists and other forces that were involved all said that this would cause conflict, that with any colonial project the indigenous population would fight back and this is what we've seen the root cause of the palestine conflict palestine israel conflict starts really with not 1948 but back in you know 1917 with this declaration giving the cover that allows for basically settler colonialism to take place systematically in Palestine. So that's when you have the beginning of the conflict, not
0: 1948.
1: And thanks to Kim Bullimore for that um, analysis of both the Battle of Beersheba. No, it wasn't the Battle of Beersheba. It was the Belfar Declaration and Zionism we heard about. Beersheba before from Michael sheikh But I'm just going to read now from a report coming through from one of the walkers on that walk for Palestine, walk for Jerusalem. This came through from Sunday night. We walked into Hebron last evening and a settler came out fully armed and started yelling abuse. The army turned up and the settler lied to say he was attacked by a Palestinian. The Palestinian was promptly arrested, even though he was the victim. A large number of army arrived quickly and forced us away. Because of the international focus and lots of video footage, the Palestinian was released. The Just Walk is getting heaps of media coverage all over Palestine. We, were greeted, we are greeted everywhere. We go as heroes, although the Palestinians are the heroes. It makes me see just how important solidarity is and how much it is appreciated. We went to a school yesterday at Arab Refugee Camp to meet kids and teachers. Wildly enthusiastic, friendly kids. The school entrance has a board with maybe 30 faces of children from the school who have been murdered by the Israeli military. And this one came from yesterday. Today we spent in the South Hebron Hills visiting Bedouin villages. All the villages we visited but one had demolition orders on most, or in some cases, all the houses and sheds in the village. And these are villages where the Palestinians have legal ownership of the land. The first village we visited, Um al-Qir, is in fact split in two by an Israeli settlement. And the contrast couldn't be more stark. One has free housing and all the services, Paved roads, water, electricity and public transport. The other, unpaved roads, no running water and only solar power. They also have demolished houses and there's a constant threat of demolition. The village had their oven where they cooked bread destroyed by the Israeli army. Twice they rebuilt it and twice more the army demolished it. On the third occasion the army threatened to demolish multiple houses if the villagers rebuilt it, and now the best desperately poor villagers have to buy bread. House demolitions take place as winter looms causing even greater hardship, and further up the road another village has had its mosque demolished three times. The village of Um Al Kia has been attacked every night recently with stones being thrown by settlers. The Israeli police response is to threaten demolition of the tent that is the target of the stones if the Palestinians yell at the stone throwers. Further up the road at another village, Palestinian farmers have been shot at today while trying to harvest their olives and school kids are attacked most days walking to school. The settlements have electricity and water but although both these services run right past the Palestinian village, all but one does not have access to these services. The settlers can build anywhere they want and the Palestinians in Sicilia can't get permission to repair tents damaged in the snowstorm. In fact, they do repairs, then the Israeli Supreme Court makes an order to completely demolish the village. And again, we are talking about a village which has legitimate legal ownership of their land. What has struck me most strongly, however, is the resilience and determination of the Palestinian people. Every village passionately understands their history and its implications for their ongoing oppression and lack of human rights. All are aware of the Balfour Declaration and what a pivotal moment it was in their history. They are outraged that Theresa May has been celebrating this instead of apologising to the Palestinians for the continuing injustices suffered by them. And now you hear the stories of resistance, the setting up of Samud Freedom Camp to help facilitate the return of villagers to their land. The camp has now been inhabited continuously since May, even though dwellings have been built and then destroyed by the Israeli army. They have support from Israelis, from internationals and from Palestinians in the city. In Zsaia, they have developed the whole village development plan and keep putting it off through the Israeli system to get it approved, but it never is. Then there is the way ordinary Palestinians use the Israeli courts to challenge and hinder Israeli plans. And the struggle is a community struggle, young, old, men and women, boys and girls. We visited a girls' school today with 90 students. They have added four classrooms, a library and a science lab since the school was built in 2014. And the joy, defiance and enthusiasm of the girls at the school is inspiring. And the play about challenging the traditional roles of girls and the joy that they have learning warms my heart. I am left with the words of one of the community leaguers who talked about what we were doing, wasn't, which was what they were doing, which was just non-violence resistance, but just as important, they are building community. And that's from one of the participants in the walk for walk to Jerusalem with the Amos Trust 2017.
3: Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours.
1: With me on the phone is the immediate past president of MAPW, the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, Dr. Margie Beavis, who is now wearing a new hat, that of National Secretary. Margie, how long was your tenure as president? I took it up informally and then got voted
0: in, so it's a over three years, and I really enjoyed doing it because you get lots of opportunities to speak about issues that are close to your heart that you think are important for people to hear about, so it's really been, I've really been very glad to have it, and I may yet do it again in the future, it was just time to give someone else a chance, and Sue Wareham, who's taken on the presidency, is fantastic, she's based in Canberra and she's very wise and active and proactive, and I'm sure she'll do a great job.
1: And I'd imagine a great deal of support and satisfaction from your colleagues and other members of MAPW.
0: Yes, people have been very kind. we when, when, when change, people come up and say, all these nice things to you. So, yes, I've been very, felt very supportive. And that's the other thing about being president. You know, you call for people who are in the organisation to take things up and to come and help, and there's lots of people there who are passionate about just about the issues that you are. So it's really wonderful to be in a group of fairly like-minded people.
1: Well, in all that time... I dare say that there are two issues that have come right to the fore and one's the, the treaty and the second is a, a Nobel Peace Prize. And I don't know which one comes first, which one should come oh first. Oh, unquestionably
0: the treaty. The treaty is the cake. Yes. The Nobel Peace Prize well, it's absolutely fabulous. Is actually icing. This treaty is a product of over a decade of work and probably decades of work by people like Tillman Ruff in Melbourne and others and I wasn't around in 2006 when it was put together. I wish I had been, but, but these people have... Uh, I've certainly supported it over the years. The treaty is a really important, concrete next step in getting rid of nuclear weapons. It's going to take another couple of decades. It isn't a magic wand, but it will render these weapons on the same footing as biological weapons and chemical weapons. It means that people recognise them for the appalling weapons of mass destruction that they are and the fact that there's no possible response the Red Cross have been tremendously supportive. I think the treaty is a really exciting thing. The thing that's important to be clear about is that it works very well with previous treaties. It's designed to help with, and act in concert with other treaties like the Non-Proliferation Treaty. And there's a lot of, people who say, well, you know, it's it's unrealistic. In fact, in the age, they quoted an ex-Pentagon official who said it was quixotic. Well, firstly, asking an ex-Pentagon official about a nuclear ban treaty is a bit like asking a tobacco company about tax on cigarettes. It's sort of not the person to ask. But secondly, we know this is going to be an effective treaty, and one of the things that's given us, you know, shown that the, the people are worried about is there was a document leaked by um, the U.S. National Security Agency, from the U.S. National Security Agency, that was sent to all the NATO countries in 2016, saying, do whatever you can to not be part of this treaty because it will really impact on how we use nuclear weapons and our ability to use nuclear weapons. And that's coming from the American government to other governments. So while in public they say this is an unrealistic, hopeless treaty, in practice they are very Concerned that it is going to limit their ability to use these appalling weapons. And, and I think the Nobel Peace Prize Committee has recognised that. And the Nobel Peace Prize itself is a huge endorsement and a tremendous tool for us to promote this treaty.
1: And as has been said by others, this is a, a Nobel Peace Prize made in Melbourne, but the Prime Minister couldn't bring himself to congratulate the ICANN members on such a momentous occasion?
0: No, he was able to ring up a hockey player, nice (laughs) hockey player, um, but he can't quite bring himself to ring up a Nobel Peace Prize winner. And I think that's a real indictment of how closely this government is linked to the American sort of pro-nukes agenda. And for, for Julie Bishop to stand and say, you know, North Korea shouldn't have nuclear weapons, but it's all right for Australia to have nuclear weapons protection from the Americans is such a piece of double it's, it's as long as one nation has nuclear weapons, other nations will want them. So the only way is going to be grindingly slow, verifiable, progressive disarmament, and it's going to take time. But it, it's not, there's no point saying we can have them and you can't because it just doesn't work.
1: There was a date in late September for countries to sign up to. What actually was that and how many countries have now signed?
0: That was the initial signing ceremony. So, um, in the United Nations, they have what's called Leaders Week when all the leaders come. And that was, we're very pleased because 53 nations have signed up already out of 122 that voted in support. There's going to be another signing ceremony the day after the Nobel Prize is awarded in New York. Oh, I think it's in the wind. So there'll be more signatures then. And this treaty becomes international law 90 days after the treaty has been ratified in 50 parliaments, or ratified by 50. Every every government has a slightly different method for ratification. In fact, three countries have already ratified the treaty. So now it's going to be getting countries to sign up and then to ratify through their parliament, and we estimate that'll take 12 to 18 months.
1: You're now asking people to contact their parliamentarians to sign the parliamentarian's pledge. What's that?
0: Well, we are encouraged because both the Greens and the Labour Party support this treaty and support signing this treaty. We're very keen for people to go to their parliamentarians and uh, get them to sign a pledge saying that they personally support this treaty because we feel that when the Labor government, Labor Party eventually gets into government, the Americans will bring a great deal of pressure on them to not sign the treaty. So by going it's really actually a very useful thing. If people wish to go to the ICANN website, so www.icanw.org, click on Australia, and you will see which parliamentarians have signed, whether your parliamentarian has signed. And if they haven't, please consider taking a copy of the page and going to see them. And also you can email ICANN Australia, contact ICANN Australia because we have actually a little kit which gives you on one page what you should say to your politician and on the other page on the back of that page a handout to give to the politician just to leave with them because it's always good to leave them with a briefing note. So there's sort of a little kit for people to go and talk to their members of parliament. And if people can do that, that is such a powerful tool because parliamentarians, when someone comes to see them, sort of recognise this person actually represents over a thousand people who haven't bothered to make the phone call and haven't bothered to come and see them. So it's tremendous. In fact, I'm going to go and see my local member tomorrow. Mm -hmm. It's it's an important thing to do. So www.icanw.org. It's the international one, and if you go to that page, go to Campaign Pledge, and then click on Australia, and you'll see which politicians have signed up. Then there's also a kit that's available if you email ICANN Australia, contact ICANN Australia, or you can contact me at MJ Beavis, mjbeavis M J B E A V I S, at outlook.com.au, and I can forward you the
1: kit. Great. Now, well, we in Australia are basking in these successes. The world is far from a, a safe or prosperous place, and we only have to look at the continuing genocide in Yemen. The corporate media hardly blinks an eye on it.
0: Yes, um, it's really uh, it's depressing. The cholera outbreak is heading for a million cases, according to the World Health Organization. They've got over 800,000 now, and more than half of those are children.
1: What's the long-term effects of cholera if they do survive? It's, a,
0: it's an acute sort of gastroenteritis. The problem is the ones for children that can be leave long-term problems in terms of really impacting on their growth, but usually it's something that comes and goes. It would be the ones that were very severely or that would be impacted with brain damage potentially, or I, I don't, the ones who get very severely dehydrated. It's pretty simple to treat with sort of electrolyte, salt, you know, salt, things like that, gastrolyte that replace the fluids. But, of course, urine isn't it, currently being blockaded by the Saudis and and the Americans, and so there's really quite severe famine, um, about 7 million, about a a huge percentage of the population, I think it's 7 million last count, are starving, and also the health facilities have virtually no supplies. So this outbreak is much worse than it could be because of the, the naval blockade that's happening in the south. The other thing that's making it worse is that the Saudis have been having a bombing campaign and more than 70 Health facilities, according to Médecins M- M- Sans Frontier have been destroyed. And, for instance, the hospital in the capital in Sauda—I'm well, probably not saying that correctly—the coordinates were given to the Saudis, and there was big labelling on the roof of the hospital to say, you know, Médecins M- Sans Frontières and Big Red Cross, but it was still bombed. So, Médecins M- Sans Frontier is saying more children will die from lack of medicines than actually from bombs because of because of the sanctions and the and the blockade. And it's also really worth remembering, if anybody remembers, that it was estimated about a million children died in Iraq in the sanctions that led up to the 2003 war. So sanctions are not the sort of painless tool that people seem to think they are. They, they impact on the, on the most disabled and the poorest and the people that are already ill and unwell.
1: Yes, you could imagine if um, Russia or a, a friend of Russia was involved in two instances like this, the the furor worldwide would be just deafening.
0: Yes, yes, no. The the Saudi, effectively, civil war is being largely ignored. I mean, the the European Union's taken some good steps. In February 2016, they imposed an arms embargo, just sort of saying instead there should be a support for the peace process and supply for humanitarian
1: assistance. Well, unfortunately, that's absolutely not happened. Is it true um, that Australia is supplying weapons to Saudi?
0: Well, Christopher Pine went to Saudi Arabia last December and with a huge fanfare and splash across the media said that, that we had four major contracts with Saudi Arabia and this was a wonderful thing. And then MAPW, we have put in Freedom of Information requests earlier this year and then when we got lots of black pages back we put in an appeal. And so these sales of weapons or armaments or whatever it is, are being, whilst they're having huge splashes in the media, are being kept very secret. And uh, this is a real problem because Saudi Arabia is not only sort of notorious for its human rights abuses, but also, like both sides in Yemen, in fact, it stands accused of quite major war crimes. So for Australia to be dealing with such a country to sell weapons is is
1: really unconscionable. And of course there's a simmering conflict relating to North Korea, and Australia's also involved with the war games there.
0: Yes, well, once again, the the reporting is very much on the threats that come from Kim Jong-un, and I'm not no fan of Kim Jong-un, but very little reporting is done on the the war games that are held every year and which were held this year even more than earlier, which model invading North Korea. So every 12 months, the Americans join with the South Koreans and the Australians to model these war games that threaten North Korea directly. And the other thing that's very poorly reported is that there have been four intercontinental ballistic missiles launched from America all the way across to the Marshall Islands in this year, which are, I mean, for each weapons test that that Kim Jong-un's done, there's been sort of front-page headlines, but the Americans sending their intercontinental ballistic missiles across to show what they can do gets an area blink in the press.
1: And in the middle of all this, there was the very successful IPAN conference, Independent Peaceful Australia Network Conference, which was held at the Maritime Union building in West Melbourne.
0: Yes, the Independent Peaceful Australia Network group did a tremendous job putting that on. It was a really interesting conference. had some tremendous speakers, including people from South Korea, discussing the implications of the THAAD missile system, um, which is basically a sort of... Supposedly a, a system that will shoot down missiles, but in fact is more effective as a as a radar system that will project well into China and has really upset China. And and it has upset the South Koreans, many South Koreans as well as the North Koreans, because they're concerned it's there really for its radar radar properties than for its protective properties. But yes, the conference that Ipan put on was terrific. The maritime Union people were tremendously hospitable, and. Yeah, the speakers were excellent. It was the most
1: interesting conference. Finally, Margie, the relatively new weapon of war, which is drone warfare. It seems to me that it's becoming legitimised in one sense where people virtually go out and buy a drone now. I know that they're not armed, but it, it, it sort of takes away, I believe, from the impact of the, what these drones in the hands of the military actually do. Yes,
0: There's two aspects of drones, for Australia especially. But yes, the the drones that have the military are currently with help from Australia's Pine Gap in Afghanistan and other countries are carrying out effectively extrajudicial killings and hundreds of civilians are known to have died in these attacks and they're actually monitored by military personnel in America. So these are not autonomous drones, these are drones that hover above communities. And those impacts are are terrible because the communities also are conscious of being watched and seen over. And for for women who wear headscarves, they now wear headscarves in their back gardens because they feel watched all the time. Children don't go, they don't play cricket anymore in parts of Afghanistan because groups get bombed. They don't have a lot of their traditional gatherings because groups get bombed. So it's very sort of intimidatory and culturally damaging Behavior, so that's one aspect of the drones, and Australia with Pine Gap are, are right there with them. The other aspect of drones is the threat they pose. That the development of machine learning and artificial intelligence, and really tremendous sensor technology, means that we are rapidly on the path to what are described as lethal autonomous weapon systems. Most people think of these as killer robots, but in fact, what they will probably be. Talking to the people who understand this more is lots and lots, the, the most likely way they would be weaponized is lots and lots and lots of tiny drones with tiny one-person kill mechanisms. And then you can sort of release a, a cloud of these drones, like insects, into a, into a space and kill all the people. And with machine learning, they can be launched to sort of have very specific things and then make decisions. So what the artificial intelligence community are concerned about is the incredible scalability of these weapons and that they can go from almost nothing to being a huge threat very quickly and in fact people like Elon Musk and I think it was over a hundred other experts in the um, intelligence community released a letter earlier this year saying that these lethal autonomous weapon systems or laws as they're known are a huge threat and the United Nations should be looking at banning them.
1: And how far down are we looking at that these might be in use? Well, we
0: used to sort of feel that you know comfortably ten, twenty years people are now saying five years i mean it 's speculative it 's being developed quite rapidly and and much more rapidly than we expect i 'm guessing but but I certainly think it 's much closer around the corner than we have thought in the past and I think once I think at the moment we rightly are focusing on nuclear weapons, but I suspect this will be the next thing after nuclear weapons, and it will be very nice to be able to ban them. Before
1: they developed, yes, there's plenty of work for MATW, isn't there? (laughs) Unfortunately,
0: there is never a shortage.
1: Okay, Margie, talk to you in a month's time. Thank you. And that's Dr. Margie Beavis, who is the new National Secretary of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. If you love 3CR, then why not support us by setting up a regular donation? You decide how much and how often you donate, and once it's set up, you don't have to think about it. Monthly, weekly, annually, you decide, and there's no minimum amount. Your donation is also 100% tax deductible and you can claim the entire amount back via your tax return, knowing you are directly diverting Commonwealth funds to keeping your favourite station operating. It's the easiest way to grow 3CR. So if this works for you, sign up. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate or call the station on 9419 8377. 3CR is very proud to announce the launch of the Beyond Buzz 2017 CD. Okay, Parker, you're up to go and see the bail justice. I don't want to go and see him. I say, no, I won't worry about it, you know. Sure enough, here comes the truck. I'm going to Dame Phyllis. Come along to Mesa at 184 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy, on Thursday the 2nd of November from 6 to 8 p.m.
2: The launch will feature a live panel discussion on Aboriginal incarceration, Q&A and deadly music.
4: Oh, like, I don't regret being in jail, not one bit. Solitude and centeredness is difficult to find in the centre of chaos. So, this
5: has become, unfortunately enough, a place to be by myself and away from all that other stuff. And, and there's, less, there's less chaos in here than there is out there.
1: Beyond the Bars 2017 CD Launch, Thursday, 2nd of November, upstairs at Mesa, 6 till 8 pm. Today an attempt to understand the Rohingya crisis in Myanmar and now also in Bangladesh and to a lesser extent Malaysia where the survivors have fled an estimated half million desperate people many young children and babies. Back in 2013 the UN identified the Rohingya as the most persecuted minority in the world whom the government of Myanmar categorises as stateless Muslims from Bangladesh. I'm speaking with Lionel Bopage, former General Secretary of the JVP in Sri Lanka and now in Australia, working as a community activist. Lionel, you've compared the situation which exists in Myanmar and has existed for many years to the situation of the Tamil people in Sri Lanka since independence from Britain. How significant are the parallels in the two countries, Sri Lanka and Myanmar, in terms of the British rule and its consequences?
5: There are several factors that we need to consider. One aspect is, of course, the uh, British colonialism, You know what they did in those countries and uh, how the populations in those countries have been affected by their policies. There are a couple of other aspects as well. Probably the second aspect would be, for example, how the local bourgeoisie or the emerging capitalist class in those countries have made use of that situation. So there are these uh, external factors and internal factors, as well as the situation is complicated by the residues of feudalism or uh, what we call asiatic mode of production in asia in sri lanka of course you know free trade was introduced in 1977 a long long time back in uh, myanmar or burma still it is being introduced in the sense say under UNU's regime and uh, nevin's regime military government and then the military dictatorship that followed they have kept the economy closed They didn't open up their economy. Now they are opening up their economy. In Sri Lanka what uh, happened is, with the opening up of the economy in 1977, the neoliberal economy needed foreign investment to come from overseas, but then there were conditions that the local labor had to be subservient or obedient to whatever the conditions. So they couldn't, they couldn't oppose any of the conditions imposed by the, the, the neoliberal companies or multinational corporations. In Sri Lanka, when they opened up, or rather when they colonized the country, obviously they needed labor, they needed land, and they needed administrative uh, resources. They acquired labor by importing Indian Uh, what i call malaya workers in plantation workers so indian tamil uh, workers from tamil nadu and so on uh, because uh, the local population in sri lanka especially the sinhalese they were not willing to work for the british colonial rule uh, to develop a plantation economy they didn't want to become uh, hired labor on the other hand they acquired land by what they call land uh, ordinance act and it is uh, comparable to the terra-nullius law that was implemented in Australia so they acquired all the land in Sri Lanka through that and then for administrative purposes they used pro-colonial who were willing to accept British Moors and traditions they educated them in their missionary schools and used them in so that was the way in Sri Lanka that was approached. In Myanmar the situation is that there are pristine land and pristine resources that could be exploited, and they are being opening up, these lands and resources, especially if you consider the situation in Myanmar, it is different to what existed in in Sri Lanka, because when we talk about Sri Lanka, we are talking about the anti-colonial wave in india in other countries in the region whereas in myanmar it is surrounded by two major countries china and india of course it is surrounded by other countries you know thailand and so on They, they 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 don't have much of an impact on myanmar i mean compared to the economic strength and the military strength of china and india if you look at what is happening now this is also it's a worldwide phenomenon i mean I, I i can't limit it to sri lanka and myanmar it's a massive worldwide corporate acquisitions program they are acquiring land for mining agricultural purposes water and so on in myanmar what has happened is military has been grabbing massive stretches of land from smallholders the first People that were subjected to this usurpation of land happened in the 1990s with Buddhists, because Buddhists and Muslims, when we talk about Rohingyas or Rakhine Muslims or Rakhine Buddhists, they are small holders of land. When big corporate companies they need land, these small holders need to be squeezed out. How do they do that? This land grabbing exercise in Myanmar has been going on for decades now. It has intensified during the last few years and that is what has given rise to the Rohingya crisis. Although we talk about, you know, we can compare the, the ethnic issues or ethno-religious issues in Sri Lanka to the ethno-religious issues in Myanmar, that is more or concentrating on the aspects of strategy and tactics used in implementing the economic policy of neoliberalism or colonialism during those days. So, From my point of view, it could be seen as an exercise for resource extraction and land acquisition in Myanmar in 1977 when in, in sri lanka when situation um, i mean when, when they opened up the economy the tamil population in sri lanka was specially affected because they were mainly involved in agricultural production in chili rice onions and so on with the opening up of the economy indian commodities agricultural commodities started to flowing in which created problems for the agricultural producers in the north and east of Sri Lanka. So there was an economic aspect, but then at the same time, I think the regime in Sri Lanka, in order to make room for their economic manuals, they used the racial and ethnic card on the one hand that could be used to divide people, on the other hand, people's attention could be diverted away from economic issues. I think uh, that is what is happening in Myanmar now, in Myanmar, the recent uh, Rohingya attacks. It has been, I think, from 1990s onwards until 2012, uh, there have been no ethnic issues as such, major conflict in Myanmar. It started in 2012 when the regime launched attacks against Rohingyas. The main purpose of the attack was to expel them. We have to put this in context, economic context as well. Since 2012, according to some reports, the land allocated to large projects in Myanmar had increased by 170%, especially between 2010 and 2013. For large corporate acquisitions, land laws have been changed. Especially if if we compare the situation in Myanmar and Sri Lanka. In Sri Lanka there was a civilian administration which used military more often to repress Tamil population as well as singular population for the economic interests of the ruling elite. In Myanmar, after Nevin it was a military dictatorship until Aung San Suu Kyi recently was elected as the state councillor so equivalent to Prime Minister's person in Myanmar in the in the elections that was held. Military is involved in this whole corporate acquisition program. So there are military economic interests as well. In Sri Lanka if we look at the period especially during President mahindra Park's time, military was involved in many commercial economic enterprises in the north and east. They started uh, those sort of business programs. They ran farms, hotels. They ran, you know, sort of, so still they are running. So there were military economic interests, but they, those interests came in at the latter stages, maybe after the year 2000. Now in Myanmar, the eco- military economic interest started with Nevin's military dictatorship, and it has been continuing and accelerating with the subsequent military dictatorships. For example, quite recently, the government allocated, according to reports, 1,268,077 hectares in the Rohingya's area of Myanmar for corporate rural development. And uh, when we compare it with uh, 2012, it was only 7,000 hectares. So there has been an acceleration in acquisition of land for corporate grabbing. Now, what has happened is because of the focus international focus on Religious ethnic aspects of the conflict most of the people are not aware of What is happening in the economic front? so I think uh, in Sri Lanka and in Myanmar the situation can be compared they are different But in Myanmar the situation is much more worse than in Sri Lanka
1: Can I take you back a few decades We're talking about the Rohingya at the moment. I can remember the Burmese military raiding, killing, raping the ethnic minorities along the border areas with Thailand. There was the Karen, the Kareni, and I can't remember the names of the others. Where does that fit into the pattern that you're talking about?
5: I think it's the same situation because, uh, say, when Nevin captured power, in uh, Myanmar, before that actually there were issues in, I think, uh, Kachin state, and uh, there were Shan militant force, there were other, other problems in other areas, like Chin state and so on, and more, there are more than 130 or so ethnic groups in Sri Lanka, in, in, in Myanmar. The main interest of the military, a couple of factors interconnected. One is the economic interest. You know, they wanted to acquire land. They wanted to get land freed from these people. But at the same time, there were this uh, aspect that was uh, remaining from the colonial days. During colonial days, especially under Unu, that's uh, immediately after the independence, he made Buddhism the state religion of Myanmar. And then when Nevin came, He got rid of that status. Actually, in that respect, you know, the military dictatorship of Nevin changed that. But then, still, the influence of religion was very strong. Actually, Nevin, although he changed the status of Buddhism as a state in the Constitution, but they made use of the Buddhism to divert the attention away from the economic issues. There were, for example, during Nevin's, Nevin's regime, there were economic issues, so there was an economic crisis that was, I think, in the 1990s. It was at that time they started repressing some of the ethnic groups in a mass scale. Where basically, the military was taking over land from Buddhist smallholders and uh, Muslim smallholders. Rakhine, and other groups in the 1990s. Now, what the military government did in 2012, they changed the law. In March 2012, they introduced the farmland law and the vacant land law. As a whole, it was tantamount to a new foreign investment law. It allowed 100% foreign capital and lease periods of up to 70 years. At the same time, they annulled the previous law that was called 1963 Peasant Law. That law protected smallholders and also protected the tillers' rights to the land. That came into being during Navin's era. That's called a socialist era those days. But, you know, everything has changed now. Against this background, the escalating displacement of millions of buddhist and muslim smallholders from the land obviously they have to become refugees of the new economic order and as i said before myanmar is not unique there have been brutal expulsions of smallholders that in other countries say for example in sri lanka when they started sugar plantations they had to get rid of so many small farmers so that they can get the land released and hand it over to multinational corporations. And even today, the government is offering huge tracts of land to multinational corporations as the economic policy of the new government.
1: You're listening to Tuesday Hometime on Melbourne radio station 3CR. This is a conversation with Lionel Bopage, the former Secretary-General of the JVP in Sri Lanka looking at the situation of the Rohingya in Myanmar. You say there are over 130 ethnic groups in Myanmar. Yes. Why are the Rohingya not citizens?
5: Rohingyas have been an ethnic group, but they, they, they were not recognized by the government as citizens of the state.
1: And when did that happen?
5: Rohingyas have been in Myanmar for a very, very long time. What happened is, before the elections actually, if if we compare the situation, before the elections uh, in which UNU came to power, that is uh, immediately before uh, Aung San was assassinated, there were Rohingya representatives in their state assembly or the parliament. During UNU's elections, some of the Rohingyas were elected, and then even and uh, i think when uh... Kyi was contested the elections and then she had a massive uh, win in the elections but she was not given the authority to take over power and she was kept under house arrest during that elections also there were at least four as far as i can remember uh, rohingya representatives elected but the problem was under nevin's regime they enacted a citizenship act called myanmar nationality act 1982 and in 1982 rohingyas were stripped of their citizenship and it applied retrospectively so they became stateless this particular act did not allow recognizing rohingyas myanmar has eight national races men and 135 ethnic groups rohingyas were never recognized as one of those. Under the RAC there were three levels of citizenship. It established the most basic level of citizenship that was called naturalized citizenship and for that the applicants needed to prove that their families lived in Myanmar prior to 1948 and also they were fluent in one of the national languages. But the Rohingya's issue was they didn't have any paperwork to show that. One, because Either it was not available to them or they were denied. To become a citizen of Myanmar, a particular person's ancestors should have belonged to one of the racial or ethnic groups in Myanmar prior to the British rule in 1823. Afterwards, Rohingyas were declared Bengali foreigners. You can, you can see they are dating back from the, to the 12th century, but they were refused and then they had been massively discriminated against in terms of studies, in terms of work, in terms of travel, marriage, practice in religion, access to healthcare. In those aspects, as well as political representation, they were not allowed to organize politically or to contest, of course, because they are stateless. Even if one or two people who are able to manage through all the barriers get to at least the basic citizenship, they were prevented from contesting elections through repressive measures. Sometimes uh, they were arrested and kept in custody until elections were over. That was the situation. other factor is I think most of the Myanmar population is uh, not sufficiently literate. Uh, The literacy rate of Rohingyas is 20%
1: how have they survived all those years with such persecution
5: you know it is not only rohingya i think that most of the people especially the geographic situation in myanmar because it is mostly pristine forests and so on access to most of those areas are very difficult and most ethnic groups are concentrated in those areas, for example, current people, then the um, Mons, uh, you know, sort of, well, some of them must be living in the cities, um, uh, like Rangoon, Yongong. But most of those people are living in extremely rural areas. So I think one of the problems is that people will suffer without getting noticed by the outside world. And I think that is what happened in Myanmar, because it was a closed society, and it was completely isolated, especially after Nevin's regime. During UNU's time, during actually even even prior to that, when Aung San established the Communist Party, there were other groups, like there was a Socialist Party. Even within the Communist movement, there were factions like Red Flag Communists, White Flag Communists, pro Chinese, fundamentally sort of Maoists. And so there were all these groups. During that time, there was recognition of Rohingyas and other ethnic groups. I think it was during the independence negotiations of Aung San with the British Prime Minister at the time, Mount Adli. During that time, there was some sort of discussion, negotiations, where the communist leaders... Came together with the leaders of many ethnic groups and decided to form the Union of Burma. That Union of Burma was more or less a federal structure. That gave rise to some of the tensions within the military because there were other sensitivities as well. So for example, Aung San, when they wanted to fight against the British, initially Aung San was trained by the Japanese in Yunnan. So there were Japanese-British issues that are coming into the equation. When the civil leaders, like the Communist Party leaders, and after the independence, still continuing the tradition of the previous groups, they were recognizing Rohingyas, and they were more or less trying to build harmony through inclusion of these ethnic groups. But then some of them, the, the military interests, didn't like that. So that is where the ethnic and religious aspects come into the equation. The, one of the issues that was used to throw UNU out of power through military dictatorship, it was this devolution of power or federalism that UNU's government and the previous socialist leaders were accepting. And recognizing. Now, Navin's regime didn't accept that. I think, under UNU's, the last uh, general election UNU faced, he made a pledge to create a special administrative zone where Rakhine Muslims, including Rohingyas, so they could be residents in that particular zone. When Navin captured power, gradually. He abolished that. That particular zone was made ineffective economically and legally.
1: Can I take you through to 2017? Yes. We now have Aung San's daughter, Suu Kyi. Kyi, What responsibility does she have for the situation at the present time?
5: I think there are two aspects. One is Aung San Suu Kyi is the state councillor, the prime minister. But under the changes to the constitution that was made before Aung San Suu Kyi came to power, the military dictatorship changed the constitution, that constitution needs 25% of the military to be represented in the parliament. And one of the vice presidents has to be from the military. And so there are other conditions that were imposed. And Aung San Suu Kyi accepted that situation she became the State Council. So in a way Aung San Suu Kyi is trapped because she can't go against the military in the open that is one of the issues. Second thing is she wants to capture power through parliamentary election. Because of the sensitivities of the Rohingya issue and also uh, the issues relating to other ethnic groups my thinking is that Aung San Suu Kyi is, in an opportunistic manner, keeping all those issues under the carpet, so that the sensitivities of the majority, Buddhists, will not be affected. This is purely looking from a parliamentary point of view. The second thing is, if Aung San Suu Kyi advocates recognition of the rights of other ethnic groups, including Rohingyas, then in the elections that uh, could affect her, that is one thing. But the second thing is, military might go back and enforce dictatorial measures again. It may, it could be done overtly or it could be done covertly, we don't know. But there is that danger as well from the military. But then it is not an excuse for Aung San Suu Kyi. For not standing for the democratic rights of those people if we come from a, a, a socialist point of view we could explain what is happening in terms of uh, the economic interests the intervention of neoliberal groups and uh, the land-grabbing exercises and so on but then Aun san si, Sanchi Suu Kyi is not such a radical I haven't seen anything, um, you know, in her writings or speeches uh, looking into those aspects or going into those sort of analysis. So on the one hand, we can understand the situation of Aung San Suu Kyi because she has got entrapped in this situation. She uh, can't take this side or that side. But from a social justice point of view, I think what she is doing is Incorrect. She has to, at least in a diplomatic way, come out and say that Myanmar government needs to recognize the human and democratic rights of all the people in Myanmar.
1: Just finally, Lionel, there are up to one million people now living in desperate situation in yes. Bangladesh, one of the poorest countries in the world. They're saying the people have to go back. Hmm. How can they go back?
5: It is, it is a pretty pretty uh, complicated situation because on the one hand, Bangladesh wants to send these people back because Bangladesh on the one hand, Bangladesh is concerned about two things. One is uh, Bangladesh's own economic situation, which is not good. And uh, keeping close to, I would say, more than 500,000 Rohingyas in camps in uh, Bangladesh is not an easy thing. And also, there is not much of foreign assistance they receive uh, for keeping them in, in Bangladesh. The second thing is the complication with Islamic fundamentalist groups. There has been some sort of concern of Islamic fundamentalist groups, international groups, getting involved with Rohingyas in camps and also links to Pakistani intelligence service. So those, those sort of concerns forces the Bangladeshi government to send these people back. But on the other hand, Myanmar government, including Aung San Suu Kyi, They are saying they have to go through this particular vetting process. But the problem is, in this particular case, Rohingyas need to prove that they are residents of Myanmar. How can they prove? Because they don't have any documents. They haven't worked out a solution to this. The other aspect I would like to emphasize is that this is not the first time Rohingyas have been expelled from Myanmar, they had to flee Myanmar, they, I think in different numbers, from maybe 100,000, I think in 2012, and some of them were sent back. And what happens is, when they go back, just before they settle down, they create another incident, and then people will have to go back to Bangladesh. You can observe a pattern where people go back, and they don't go back to their original land, they are, they are asked to stay some in some other places, and then again they are expelled. They had to flee. One of the issues would be if Myanmar regime's interests with regard to corporatization or are links with corporate interests wants the land where Rohingyas originally lived to be used for... Neoliberal purposes, then Rohingyas can't go back to those places. So they have to be moved into new places. Where are they going to settle down? Will Rohingyas uh, accept that? A- another aspect would be the identity issues, because Rohingyas want them to be identified as Rohingyas, whereas the Myanmar government doesn't want to recognize them as Myanmar. I know there have been some sort of negotiations where instead of rohingyas whether they could be identified with a different name uh, whether myanmar government could accommodate them still there is no resolution to that so it is a very complicated issue most probably uh, rohingya people will have to stay in bangladesh in uh, displacement camps for a long time to come
1: You've been listening to Lionel Bopage, the former Secretary-General of the JVP Party in Sri Lanka, talking about the similarities between the situation of the Tamils in Sri Lanka and the Rohingya in Myanmar. That's all I have for today. Hopefully I'll be having Bruce on the program next week. I did try to reach him by Skype, Late yesterday afternoon, but it didn't quite happen. But hopefully, it will happen next week because he's on that walk for Palestine, which um, has taken people right from London, right through Europe to Palestine, and they're there. They're going to be there and mark the anniversary of the Balfour Declaration signing on. I think it's Thursday. Right, I think it's Thursday the 2nd. That's all for me for today. I'll be back next week at 4 o'clock. Stay tuned for Done by Law. and, um, And that's it for me. Bye for now.